Can you describe the whole story in your own words? What? <laughs> the entire story? I guess I better pee first. I'm interested in the way we tell stories about our lives, about the fact that the truth about the past is often ephemeral and difficult to pin down. Well, I guess if you could start by describing Mom in as much detail as possible. My memory of Mom is she was a fun person at parties, that she laughed loud. Michael was a private person, and Diane was not a private person. She yearned for more. She was very warm, you know, full of life. But I do think it's really interesting to look at this one thing that happened and how it's refracted in so many different ways. What I overheard was Mom saying that she was pregnant and that she wasn't sure who the father was. Sarah Polly is proving to be that most valuable of filmmakers, Adam. She's an unpredictable one. The young actress's writing-directing debut, 2006, is away from her. I'd say it was an uncommonly knowing portrayal of an aging couple's struggle with Alzheimer's. Then last year, with Take This Waltz, she gave us a stylistically bold look at infidelity with the oddball leads of who else? Michelle Williams and Seth Rogen. Now we have Stories We Tell. Not only a documentary, but a really uniquely envisioned one in which Polly employs reenactments of scenes from her family's past. She even uses actors, period sets, and costumes. And it also has this voiceover narrative structure that's written and delivered by her father. I'm sure we'll get into these formalistic choices that she made, but I want to start by taking a step further back and consider stories we tell as a personal documentary in general. I think I'm probably a little bit more skeptical about this genre than you are, in that I need a strong reason why this family or this particular person is compelling enough to be the subject of a film. I'm not judging the value of their life, just as the subject of a film that audiences will want to see. Now, watching stories we tell, I came up with this very unscientific formula that you'll probably shoot down quickly, but bear with me here. This might help us determine this certain quality I'm trying to grasp with a personal documentary genre. If the family narrative on the screen is half as engaging for the audience, just half as engaging for the audience as it is for the family members themselves, then I would say the doc is a success. I mean, in other words, we're always going to find our own stories fascinating, our family stories fascinating. So the trick of a documentary is capturing just some of that and communicating it to the viewer. Is that a fair formula, Adam, first of all? And if so, how would you say Stories We Tell stands up in the light of it? Well, I can definitely answer the second part first and say that it stands up really well for me. I think it far exceeds that half formula there that you've put together in terms of my interest level anyway as an audience member watching this family. I may even reject the notion completely, though, that it's always going to be more fascinating to the people telling the story or to the family members who went through it. It even comes through at one point that one of Sarah Polly's sisters says directly to her, who cares about our stupid family? She admits she's sort of embarrassed. It's our family. She says every family has a story. What makes ours worth putting on screen? That's the question that that made me think about this. the fundamental question. There you go as you watch this movie. I should probably start by saying in terms of my love for this film, and I did really love this film, had a very strong reaction to it, that I am the guy who, as you know, Josh, is naturally drawn to movies about how and why we construct narratives artistically, but also in our day-to-day personal lives. I'm especially drawn to movies that are about the intersection of the two, that are about the intersection of art and the personal, which this one definitely is. Even more specifically, though, I'll admit as well that the first short film I ever made 
back in film school, my one glorious year of film school, was essentially a reenactment of a scene that played out between my mom and dad back before they got married. Nothing remotely as heavy as what the people are dealing with in stories we tell, but something I think my dad told me, but honestly can't remember. It might have been my mom, and it kind of blew my mind, and I felt compelled to dramatize that. I cast someone in the role as me observing this scene play out. So this struck a chord with That's me exactly on what's that going personal on level. This film. It, yeah. it really is. So Sarah Polly clearly saw my film and <laughs> That's is what I was thinking from me. But I think the real answer to the question of why do we care about this family? Why is this story worth telling? It is because she gets at something much larger and universal, which is that notion of constructing narratives. But even beyond that, Josh, there is an interesting mystery here simply to follow, to watch this family drama play out, to see how the revelations that come to light, not only through the documentary process, but even before the documentary process. And that's really what she's doing is trying to kind of put some of these pieces together and really make sense of it. She's using the film as her platform to make sense of this and to give everybody a voice. And a lot of things do come out of that artistic process that I think we can all relate to or at least take some interest in and find fascinating. I certainly did. Well, I think this movie met my skepticism because Polly is interested in more than her family story. As you're talking about, she is very interested in how we do tell stories, what mechanisms we use. And so doing these recreations, having her father write this narrative piece and then recite it gave the movie another level that engaged me. But something interesting happened as the picture went on, and it's that I seem to feel that the movie reversed itself on Polly, where she came around to a point she didn't expect in that what she has done at the end is really create a love letter to her father, to this man. I don't think she set out to do that. I agree. And the fact that it comes about naturally through these techniques, and there's a reason it has another bittersweet level of resonance having to do with the central mystery, which I suppose we do have to get into a little bit, but it's it's the key for me why this was such a bittersweet love letter. And she's exploring the fact that it had always been a family joke that she had a different dad, that this man, Michael Polly, who she's always known as her father, wasn't her real father. Turns right. out, and she finds out, as you pointed out, well before making this film, that's true. And so she's explored who her real father could be. Her mother has long since died. And that's part of the movie. But eventually, through all of this, she realizes how much Michael Polly, who raised her after her mother's death, has shaped her youth. We see that has shaped her artistic endeavors. He was once an actor as well. Right. And we can see them communicate over the acting process. And eventually, how Michael Polly shapes this entire project with this script he's written, that you recognize what a hugely crucial part of her life he's been, even though she's recently realized he's not her real dad. Exactly. And the other children had gone away. Suddenly there was just you and I left. Luckily I had you there to look after as well as to look after me. You know, you were, what were you, 11 then? The next few years, our relationship, I think, was a very, very, a great period for my life. It certainly was an unusual relationship too, in the sense it's not very often that a father and a daughter are so close because of circumstances. And so, in a way, I felt closer to you than I'd ever felt about the other children, because there'd always been Diane there as well. Uh, Suddenly, there was myself and this little girl. 
there were uh, four or five very close years we had together then. I do want to go back, though, to what you said about how unpredictable Sarah Polly is as a filmmaker, and you referenced her previous two films and how this one seems a little bit of an anomaly. I'm embarrassed to admit that it took listening to Elvis Mitchell on KCRW's The Treatment to point out the obvious fact that Away From Her is about a marriage, a marriage crumbling and redefining itself. Take This Waltz is about a marriage crumbling and redefining itself and infidelity. Infidelity also comes up in a way for her. And now we get this film, this very personal, this autobiographical film, and it's almost like a light bulb goes off and you say, of course she made those two previous films. This so informs those other films. Yeah, she's not eclectic in the sense that Danny Boyle is, where he's leapfrogging completely different genres, and she's clearly interested in similar themes. But I'm thinking more of the style of the pictures themselves. Even her two fiction films are so different stylistically. You're right. They are completely different, all three films. And I like that you focus on those recreations in particular, because that for me, as I was thinking about this notion of narratives and how she uses different film techniques to underscore the way we do tell our stories and the way we consume them as audience members, what we take as being truthful or not being truthful based on how it's presented. We do get a lot of footage in this film that looks like old Super 8 footage of her mother as she's talking about her mom, talking about her dad. We see home movie style footage of her brothers and sisters, and there seems to be a lot of it. As you're watching it, you know something is a little bit fishy because nobody has that much Super 8 footage that matches up perfectly with the events you're trying to recall. Especially the narration. I mean, the, the visual bits emphasize exactly what's being said. Right, so as you're watching it, you know something is up. You know that these are probably recreated, that she merely hired actors and actresses to play these various people. She got the... Super 8 style footage and she made it grainy and shaky and you have a lot of those quick edits that you get those flash edits in old Super 8 style home movies but as you watch it the illusion of it being authentic does start to seep in you can't help it you start convincing yourself that that is how her mother must have really been that's how this event must have really played out and watching it a second time I was fortunate to have a screener of this as you did Josh and so after I saw it I went back to it the next day and scanned through it again and when you do see it that second time it becomes much clearer which scenes are obviously reenacted versus the ones that are probably legitimate home movie footage. You can start to see that the actress playing Diane does look, of course, different than the woman who really was Sarah Pauly's mom. But even then, you can't completely trust your take on the scene. I think Sarah Pauly does want us to always be questioning those images that are being presented to us. Well, and that that's the distinction, because you could say, It's dishonest to do that, that you're tricking the audience. But I think she is putting it out there as a way of to make us consider what we trust and and how memory works. She does pull the shade back later, too. She does. And and so she does become honest about it. What I also liked about that technique, though, is it's another way of getting into her head, probably Polly's head, as she's trying to imagine what her mother's life might have been like before her. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming she's taking information from her siblings to recreate these scenes and asking them how they might have remembered it. So Mm -hmm. what you're getting here is really an intimate portrayal of someone's imagination about their family. I think that's pretty fascinating, something Mm -hmm. other personal documentaries don't offer us. No, I agree completely. And I think as well in terms of forcing us to question what we're seeing and question how we take in documentaries in general, one of the other interesting things Polly does is show 
her subjects, not just in the talking head kind of mode. And, you know, Errol Morris certainly plays with this. And there are other documentary filmmakers, Werner Herzog, who have done a lot of similar things. But just the act of taking someone and showing them in the moments before they start an interview proper, showing them getting ready or the moments in between questions that in any other type of documentary would have been cut out. It makes you realize that there is a certain authority we give to the people on screen and consequently to the filmmaker when we see that traditional cut from one talking head to another talking head to another talking head giving their version of an event, you automatically imbue that with a sense of credibility. You assume that they must know what they're talking about, what they're saying is honest. The director chose to keep that in there and cut out everything else for a reason. So just the act of keeping those extra moments in there and showing the extraneous bits also forces us to question everything we're hearing. All of us, you, me, my dad, my siblings, my mother's friends, etc., have similar stories with large and small details that vary. I'm interested in the way we tell stories about our lives, about the fact that the truth about the past is often ephemeral and difficult to pin down. And many of our stories, when we don't take proper time to do research about our pasts, which is almost always the case, end up with shifts and fictions in them, mostly unintended. There's quite a powerful montage going on, and I forget what the subject at the time is, but it's something very emotional. And Polly just cuts to a montage of each of her siblings still in front so of the good. camera and holds for maybe 10 seconds each. As yeah. they're, some of them are trying to fight back tears. It, it probably sounds manipulative, but it's not. It's allowing those people to have a more authentic moment. Right. That really comes through. Yeah, it does. And speaking of them, I think we have to give credit for the overall success of this film, largely to a lot of her interview subjects. But in particular, how about her brothers, Johnny and Mark, in this film? Just in terms of being characters on screen, their sense of humor, Johnny is for lack of a better word, a card, and he is hilarious. And he has a great moment where he even starts to undermine the filming process by calling attention to the process as it's happening, where, for example, as they're talking about, well, who would have been her father, her real father, and how they used to joke about it at the dining room table back when they were kids. And he says, oh, I know what you're going to do. You're going to cut it together like this. The montage is going to be me saying his name and him saying his name right, and her saying right. it. And that's, of course, what Polly does. How else would you do it? He's constructing the narrative that Sarah Polly is giving us in his own head while he is helping to produce that narrative. And the brothers also have, actually, I think it's the older brother and older sister who are, we get this other layer of family history that's only alluded to, but the two oldest step-siblings of Polly actually were from her mother's first marriage, Mm -hmm. not to Michael Polly, who's the main father figure in this film. And they just briefly allude to their life of not being allowed to live with Diane Polly. They were left to live with her father and talk about an abusive situation. And we don't get a lot of information there. But the other step-siblings who came after that experience seems to have rocked them right. as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just a whole nother level of family history going on in the background that gives such a richness to this clan's whole experience. Yeah, and I think that moment is really the key moment for me in the entire film. It's actually this scene with Mark talking on camera about his step-siblings. And he breaks down at one point because he's talking about the fact that his mother must have felt so much pain because 
she used to have to drop them off with their father. She couldn't take care of them, and we won't get into all the details why, but basically she had to abandon her two children at the time before she met Michael and went on to start another family. And what Mark notes is that not only is it bad enough that she can't be there for all the good times, but she couldn't be there for the bad times either. She couldn't protect her kids from the bad stuff that was happening to them. And as a parent, that just devastated me because it does really crystallize the key conundrum of being a parent, which is that there's this great joy in everything you get from your kids. But I can certainly relate to what Mark says, what other writers like John Irving have talked about. It's a key theme in the world according to Garp and some of his other books, how you're constantly terrified. You're constantly (laughs) terrified about the fact that you're not protecting them, that they're going to be hurt, that you can't be there all the time for them. And that angst of being a parent is something that takes its toll on parents. And it probably took its toll on Diane. It's only later. It's only really probably through this process of talking about it on camera that Mark really was able to drill down onto that and have that realization. But how about the fact that he even recognizes that about two older step-siblings? This was all going on probably before he was born. Right. I mean, that that just speaks to the interconnectivity of these various siblings in this extended family. And that really is another one of the themes that the movie gets at without really pushing too hard is how broken families reform or form with new families. And this, you know, this idea of especially the American perfect nuclear number of how your family should look in order to function well. I mean, this movie captures a family that has that tight connection and love despite having all sorts of unconventional relationships going on. And this is a woman who's had essentially three sets of families in her short life. And yet all those siblings are tight enough to make a really amazing film like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, my lawyer has said I don't have to talk to you, and so I'm not going to say anything more. I remember Johnny saying that someone thought that your father might be someone that Mom had acted with in a play. And I told them not to say anything to anyone, but then they turned it into a joke. It, and I did not participate in the joke, did I? It's fascinating, too, to watch how some of the different characters in the film deal with the revelation of finding out who Sarah Polly's biological father is. When it's and, no longer a joke. Exactly. And they are, to be sure, artistic people. We're not going to get into the specifics of who exactly we're, we're talking about, but they are artistic people, so they would have maybe a natural inclination to do this. But I still think it's really interesting that when they have that moment of revelation, what do they do with the knowledge? How do they try to process it? They try to process it the same way Sarah Polly is doing with this film by constructing another narrative, by putting it in some kind of, not fictionalized form, but in some kind of artistic form. Her father, the script that he's reading the narration from, he wrote that when he learned that he wasn't really her father. He felt like he had to then tell his story. He had to completely recontextualize his life, and he did that in written form. The man who is her true father did the same thing. And there's a fascinating subplot at the end of this film about the fact that he wants to tell the story. Mm -hmm. He doesn't understand why Sarah Polly gets to tell the story. He says, I knew your mother. I think that's a very, very revealing moment. Well, it gets into this whole notion of the ethics of documentary film and who does have the rights to tell a story. And I love what Sarah Polly ultimately decides clearly by making this film, which is that 
everybody needs to have a voice. The only way to get at any kind of truth is to let everybody have a say. That other character, though, rightfully points out that you never get to the bottom of anything when you hear everyone else's voice. That's a really key line, right? He says, you never touch bottom. You never get on firm ground. And this film doesn't ever land on firm ground. But that's kind of the point. You do get on firm ground when one person says, here's how I saw it, here's how I look at it now, and here's the lesson you should take away from it. But that's not necessarily the truth. That's just one version of the truth. You get on their firm ground. That's it. That's what that character wants. That. wants. Yeah. yeah. No, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. I think, too, that the, the layers in general here, as we talk about a film that is clearly very meta and aware of what it's doing as a construction, are all the narratives within that. And what I mean is, as we go back and learn more about the characters, think about the fact that Michael and Diane, as you said, Josh, are both actors. And on top of that, Diane falls in love with Michael, probably more so because she falls in love with the character he is. Yeah, they talk about that They talk about how she really falls in love with not even him as an actor, but the character that she first meets, who is nothing, it turns out, like who he is in real life. And there's some disappointment about that. The narration we touched on from Michael is in the third person. He's acting as if he's writing about someone else, but it's really him. And we get this interesting dynamic as well that comes through in the form of a play Michael and Diane did later in their lives called Philomena, where they learn one of the lessons from that play is that children are children, and they're all equal, and you don't view anyone differently because they might not be biologically yours. I mean, they were in that play Mm -hmm. together with that going on, even as this drama is going to unfold later in their lives. So those layers to the narrative are another thing that really carry this mystery through and make it something about much larger than just, well, who was Sarah Polly's real father? At some point, that stops becoming the key Oh, sure. Getting probably through this film. Probably Very early about on. Half, yeah, at least I think, halfway through, I, I think. I think more than that. You're right. Probably about the 30-minute mark, you really do abandon that as being your key focus. And at one point, I was disappointed that Sarah Polly came out and said it, but she was reading from, I believe, reading from an email where she wrote it to another character in the film. So it's not so much her interjecting this because she felt like the audience didn't get it, but she comments on how one of the best parts about this whole process is noting all the inconsistencies in the narrative. And early on, you start to recognize all those different inconsistencies coming through. The fact that Michael says, well, I was a good husband. You know, I did all the duties you would want a good husband to do. And then they cut to the other siblings and they're like, actually, you know, that's not how he was at <laughs> right. all. He was kind of not really present, and he didn't do a lot of the and the chores comes, that he should have. And he comes around to that realization through this process as right. well. I mean, if if anyone, again, it really strikes me that this is almost a movie about and of Michael Polly and his yeah. journey more than Sarah's, really, in a lot You're of right. ways. And and I just I just found that intensely compelling to watch him come from one spot to another through just a a hugely shocking in some senses. I mean, we also learn that he had an idea something like this might have been going on, but to actually confront it, which he has to do in this process, is pretty compelling to watch. Yeah, it is largely, too, because they are coming face to face. What we see through this process is them coming face to face with some truth about their lives. They've discover that truth along the way before we get to them, but just the extra step of then having to talk about it and process it in this film takes it to another level. And I think it's really funny to look at the fact that the kids know 
on some level, you could say they know she's not their full sister. That's why they were always joking about it. It was a joke, but it was born out of truth, and they knew it deep down. But when it finally is proven as a fact, that changes everything. Well, it's not a joke. Just that act of it becoming fact, unquestionable fact, it not only changes the way they view themselves and the world, but it crushes a lot of them. And we hear how it changes them in very serious ways. But I just find that fascinating, this idea that something you know deep down already, just having it verified as fact changes your oh, entire world. Yeah, you're, you're watching denial and progress mm-hmm. throughout this film and then watching it get broken down. Obviously, Stories We Tell gave us a lot to chew on. It is out now in limited release. If you get a chance to see it and agree or disagree with our takes, we want to know what you think. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. How ironic it is that the final revelation and its aftermath have brought Sarah and I closer together. What about?